Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is critical to our obedience in line with Christ's strategy for the mission of the church. We'll be looking at one of the most important passages in the New Testament found in the book of Acts, and we're going to examine it from five different lenses. Ultimately, we will see that God's plan is for the gospel to reach beyond our present cultural expression and form a global people of God that worship him from every nation, language, and tribe. Thanks for joining with us as we look at taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was years ago as I was traveling back to my university, I was passing through Kentucky, through a particularly steep set of hills in the Appalachian country, and my trusty old pickup truck that I bought right here in the UP started to slow down while I was pressing the gas. Now, those of you who work on engines know that's not how vehicles work. And uh, it was uh, only a couple miles further going up this high, steep, graded hill that the truck would not move any further. And I found myself on the side of the road with a burnt out transmission. Now, it didn't matter if I had the desire to go. It didn't matter if I had the obligation to go or even the duty to go. I did not have the power. I did not have the ability to go. The church, likewise, has to rely on an external form of power, an ability such that your desire could be accomplished with actual supernatural strength. You need power that comes from outside of yourself. The disciples who followed Jesus needed a kind of power, a supernatural witness, an ability to carry out their longing and desire of spreading the fame of the message of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at that in depth, and it is a bit of a repeat message. You're going to see that our author today is the same as our author last week. It's, it's uh, Luke, a traveling companion with Paul, and we're going to be in his second volume in the book of Acts. Uh, we're in this series called Show and Tell, and for today we're going to be focusing in on what is perhaps one of the most important texts in the New Testament. Again, looking at Jesus' final words, this, this is... The, the marching orders for the church that come from Jesus as his last words. And so here in the book of Acts, we'll find once more the call to the disciples. But this passage, again, higher than just about any other passage, forms for us a strategy by which to follow. So uh, the, the verse that we're going to zero laser in on, zero down on, is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of the background. We're going to read a little bit before that as we fill in some of the context. But our, our path this morning together is, is going to be to try to look at this passage from five different perspectives. Do you, do you know that more than one thing can be true at a time? Do everybody know that? You, it's, not, it's not just that one passage only means one thing. Uh, you can have multiple truths happening simultaneously. It's like an orange. An orange is the color orange. An orange is juicy and an orange is sticky. Now, those truths matter more at different times. If you needed an orange for a colorful piece of fruit, you don't care that it's juicy. You care that it's the color orange. If you, if you were uh, uh, in the desert, starving and, and thirsty, you don't care if it's orange or not. You want it because it's juicy, right? And if you find yourself peeling an orange in your mom's living room, 
you don't care that it's juicy or color orange. The sticky part is the part that matters there. So do you, do you see how it depends on your perspective? You can have multiple truths all happening at the same time. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at as we look into Acts 1.8. We're going to see the, uh, five really important perspectives, uh, but we're going to land on one that I think is probably the most important for us. So that's the direction we're headed today. Ho- hopefully everybody's with me. Acts chapter 1, we'll read through it and then we'll work through these perspectives together. Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes in a cloud and hid from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And, and this is the, so where the story ends for this morning. Now, we're not going to touch the uh, doctrine of the ascension. I love that. We're going to save that for another day. We are, like I mentioned, going to zero in on verse 8. As Jesus says, you will be my witnesses having received power from the Holy Spirit. In where? There, there were four places listed. Did you catch them? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If you have your sermon notes, I have listed out um, what I am calling the categories by which we can look at the at a certain perspective to understand um, to understand this commission, to understand Jesus's words, to understand the strategy that he gives the church, that he gives his disciples. The first is to look at Acts one eight as a promised gift. So. You, you really can't miss it in the text that the disciples need power, that they are incapable of accomplishing this task on their own. They, they need what, what God has promised. Um, even though Jesus says that there is a command that he's given to them, uh, you'll see that up in verse 4, um, it's not in so much a command as it is a promise that they are to receive. So the disciples here are told that you will receive that which my father promised. And so the reception of power places the disciples in a position of having to trust 
God's promise. God said it, so it's, it's going to happen. It's going to be true, and you can rest on that. And so they're told to wait. That's the command. I, I, I Look again for me in verse 4. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Raise your hand if you love to wait. No, no takers. Good. Honest church this morning. Uh, imagine how hard that must have been for the disciples. I mean, they are rearing to go. But Jesus knows if you go after this in your own strength, in your own ability, you will find yourself frustrated to no end because you actually need a supernatural kind of power. So hold, hold, hold it, pump the brakes, rear the horses back, and just be patient. Just wait. There's a promised gift that Jesus gives. And it's not just found in the Holy Spirit. It's also found in where the commission begins. So look with me again in verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I want to make sure we understand that there's a significance as to why Jesus says you start in Jerusalem. And the reason is because it was the promise to the Israelites. It was God's promise to his people that it was the Jews who first we're going to receive the gospel. And that has to begin where? That has to begin in Jerusalem. Why? Because that was God's promise. In fact, there's a passage in Mark, uh, uh, Matthew 10, verse 15, where Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples as they go out. And he says something, it's a little bit unsettling for me, but he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't cross into Samaria. Go first of all to the lost house of Jacob. Go first of all to my people. And that's because there has to be, at the beginning, a fulfillment of what God has promised. So two ways I hope you catch the promised gift this morning. The first is the Holy Spirit, which God has promised. And the second is the fact that it begins in Jerusalem. Here's why this is important for you and I as Christians. The church started in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Like, we, we trace our roots, we trace our history to God's promise fulfilled in the city of Jerusalem. And that's important. It's important for the church to remember that the task of missions doesn't start here. It starts in what God has already fulfilled. Are you with me on this? You already understand? Why is it important that when we seek to be witnesses as missionaries, the very first place we begin is resting upon the promise of God? Is because if we tried to do it in our own strength, we would fail. So we have to begin with that reminder. The strategy that God gives is to begin in Jerusalem And that strategy involves having a power that doesn't come from you and I. It comes from the Holy Spirit. I think of an analogy with this when it comes to commitment within a relationship. I hope everybody here has a confidence with their partner, with the one that they love. But how do you know? How do you know that they'll stay faithful? How do you really know that the person who you love is going to be faithful to you and won't cheat on you. Anyone wearing a wedding ring? This one? Do you know what the wedding ring symbolizes? It, hopefully for you it symbolizes a moment. And if you don't have a ring, that's fine. But you know, it's, it, it, symbol, it symbolizes that moment when you stood facing one another before God and you said, I promise. You guys with me on this? You, you know what I mean? I, I promise. So your confidence within the relationship rests on a promise. I, I, I want us to understand that that's the that's exact same picture that the church has to have 
as we seek to be obedient to God as missionaries. It rests on God's promise. One last promise I want to talk about. Um, God destroyed the earth with water, and then he gave the people, he gave Noah and his family, a promise by giving them a symbol. Do you remember what it was? It was a rainbow. I love that. Every time I see a rainbow, uh, and unfortunately you see rainbows on the internet, on the news all the time now, but I still remember, that is a symbol of God's promise. That's what it stands for. So the, the first place we begin as we look at this text is to make sure we have our feet grounded, not on what you can do, but on what God has promised to do. Give me an amen if you're with me on that. Okay, all right. Secondly, it's a uh, verse 1-8 shows a progressive ground. It shows the mission of God moving forward. It shows it advance, advancing. Um, I actually think when we look at Acts 1-8, this, uh, this second perspective, might it actually might be the most defensible, uh, which is that the reason why Jesus says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is because that's exactly what Luke meant to record in the unfolding of the story of the book of Acts. If you were to read the book of Acts, should we do that this morning? You guys want to read the whole book of Acts? No, we won't. We'll save that for another time. Um, If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that in chapters 1 all the way to chapter 7, the message of the gospel is proclaimed, guess where? Jerusalem. And then starting in chapter 8, it make it in eight and nine, it makes its way through Judea to where? To Samaria. And then starting in chapter 10, moving all the way to the end of the book, it moves to the ends of the earth. And so what we need to understand when it comes to missions is that it is evaluated by seeing progressive distance. It's continuing to advance. It's continuing to move. You know one way we can tell if the church is being obedient to the mission of God according to this strategy? Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth? is because we see the message reaching out. It continues to move forward. When, um, the, when the grass gets long at our house, the Lord gave me a son. And I, yeah, hallelujah. And I say, son... He's shaking his head over here. Uh, go, go mow the lawn. Now, do you know how I can tell if he's being obedient? That's right. He, he gets up and he goes. That's how I can tell. So my strategy is you mow the lawn. That's my strategy. And the way that I can tell he's obedient is because his butt's no longer making a dent on the cushion. That's how I can tell. There's progression to the ground that's being covered. What about you? What about the church? Uh, God's the one giving the command. Is there any evidence to show that there's progression being made? Is there, is there any movement that we could, that we could uh, mark down and measure that shows that it's actually happening? Uh, what, what I want you to see is that mission is displayed through distance and the expansion of the gospel. This is, this is crucial to how we understand the unfolding of the book of Acts. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... To the ends of the earth. Number three, uh, we can look at this through the lens of prioritized groups. Uh, this, this perspective is seen in concert with last Sunday's message out of Luke's gospel. I don't know if you remember, but in Luke 24, we looked at it last Sunday. He said, this message of the good news of the gospel will be preached to all nations beginning where? Do you remember where it begins? In Jerusalem. 
It starts in Jerusalem. And I think actually one of the primary observations from that is that you have to get it right here first. You, you've got to be able to show competency to get this message right at home. Before you say, all right, let me, let, let me go to the ends of the earth, let me say, okay, you're, you're, you need to practice it at home first. So you need to get it right here first. This is why it's, it's a prioritization within these groups. So you still see that there is a, a progression towards it, but you need to make sure you're practicing it at home. Um, I, I want to make sure that the church understands that this is crucial for a healthy church. This is crucial. When we look to send out missionaries, and I don't mean just internationally, I mean you are a kind of missionary everywhere you go. Your witness will lose all of its authority if you do not have your home in order first. If you don't have your own particular Jerusalem in order according to God's will and God's word. Everybody kind of get what I'm saying here? A similar illustration to this is when you're on a plane and the flight attendant is showing you the exits, right? And then she says, in the case of a water emergency, you'll have a, or you'll see an oxygen mask. (laughs) That won't do you any good in a water emergency. Uh, I'm not a flight attendant. It's fine. Um, If your mask falls, what do they tell you to do first? First, put it on yourself because save yourself. Is that why? Because you're going to be no good to the person next to you if you yourself are not healthy first. Everybody everybody understand this? In the New Testament, we're tasked when it comes to missions with the avenue of doing good works. You you heard a dozen messages from me earlier in the year on doing good. Amen? Yeah, yeah, we're supposed to do good. But remember, the text says, especially to the family of God. This is like, you got to get it right here first. If we don't get along, church... If we don't forgive each other, church, how are you going to preach a message of forgiveness to anybody else? So there is a prioritization when it comes to the strategy of God. It begins in Jerusalem, and from there it's extended out because you're going to be no good to anybody else until you make sure you're healthy as well. So, so I'm hoping as we're looking through that lens, you're, you're giving some evaluation over where you're at. Um, Yes, I need to rely more on the promises of God. Yes, I need to get my butt off the couch cushion and go. Or yes, I need to make sure that I'm actually being obedient to the very first place the gospel has impact before I concern myself with sending it somewhere else. Number four, there is a processive goal. Uh, I want to make sure you didn't mishear me. Not progressive. The word is processive. So you, you should hear the root of process in there. As we look at this passage in Acts 1.8, uh, I want to make sure that we recognize what it does not say, because sometimes when people read this, they hear something that's not actually there. Sometimes they hear uh, Jesus say, uh, you will be my witnesses in either Jerusalem or Judea, or, is that what it says? Does it say either or? Uh, I hope your Bible doesn't say that. Um, it also does not so uh, sequentially, uh, well, First Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria. The, the process happens because all of them need to happen, which means this. The processive goal of this commission says that God has a direction in it. Do you catch the direction? Starts in Jerusalem, ends where? It ends with the, it ends with the ends of the earth. Mission is, direct, is designed towards the direction and the end goal of reaching 
all peoples, all nations. Here's what I mean by processive. Uh, Have you ever seen um, a uh, Major League Baseball game when it starts to rain? Uh, What what, what does the field crew do when, when the rain starts coming? If you've ever seen this, they grab a big tarp and they, they start at home plate, and they all hold on. And what do they do with it? You guys, you've seen this, right? They drag it across the whole field. Well, it starts at home, and then as they drag it, it covers the, uh, the pitcher's mound until finally they've covered all the way to the ends of the earth, right? <laughs> no, they, they've covered all the bases. Um, that's what Jesus has in mind for us to understand here. The direction and the goal of reaching the ends of the earth means you're going to get there by covering Jerusalem first and then covering Judea and then covering Samaria and then finally reaching it to the uttermost places. You can't leave any of them out. There there is no version of God's desire for his kingdom expansion to just skip over the tough ones. You know, those folks are a little bit hard to deal with. So we're just going to skip over them and we're going to go to the easier place to go. That's not how it works. It's processive and in obedience to go towards the goal, you will, in fact, end up reaching all of the all the others sequentially along the way. You guys, are we understanding this? Is this making sense? There's a processive goal to the message of the good news and we're going to get it wrong. We're going to we're going to miss the strategy if all of us are not aiming at the ends of the earth. We all have to be focused there. That has to be our aim. I wanted to share um, from the word of God some repetition that would help us to understand this. So I, I just cherry-picked uh, one, two, three, four, like uh, eight or nine verses out of dozens and dozens that I want to read for you that help communicate God's processive goal for all peoples. This is from Philippians 2, 10 and 11, Paul writes that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue should confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation... All tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and the Lamb of God. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people and nation and language. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, proclaiming to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Matthew 8, verse 11. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, And will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And the verse that you heard from Paul Jacobs already, Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, 
It is too small a thing that you be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's just a handful of verses that I could give you. God's desire is processive for all people, nations, languages, and tribes. We need to make sure that we're setting our crosshairs there. And when we do, it will help us go sequentially in order through all the rest. All right, let me give you the last lens. And, and this last one is the one that I think is the most crucial. This is the one that we are going to sink our teeth into for the remainder of our time this morning. Prejudicial gaps. Uh, that what God understands is that when it comes to the message of the gospel, there are gaps, there are hurdles that are defined by prejudice. Now, it's not, it's not only prejudice that the gospel solves. Um, it's the gaps that prejudice creates. There's a, there's a clue that helps us understand that this is the primary way of understanding Acts 1-8 because it's one little word, one little word in there that really stands apart from all the others. Uh, Jake, uh, Jerusalem and Judea are fine. Ends of the earth are fine. It's a funny little nation right there in the middle. What is it? Samaria. What is Jesus talking about with Samaria? Do you, you know, Samaria is not far. Like, that wasn't like a huge sacrificial leap for the disciples to go to Samaria. I mean, there's no problem. It's just a little state boundary. Like, a couple of minutes, we could be there. So why? Why would Jesus put Samaria in here? And the reason is, that is the key that unlocks this last lens of understanding God's strategy for the church is to overcome prejudicial gaps. I, I could preach a long time over the emphasis within the New Testament of having to unite the people groups of Jews and Gentiles because that, more than anything, is what the apostles struggled with. More than anything. It wasn't until years down the road that the church was like, hmm, let's talk about the nature of Jesus' uh, deity. And that, that was a struggle in the, uh, in the second and third centuries. And then in the third and the fourth centuries, the church was like, hmm, let's figure out the Trinity and how all that works. None of those were problems from the beginning. But do you know what was? Those crummy Gentiles. Man, those Gentiles. In fact, we have right at the, right at the centerpiece of Luke's narrative in the spreading of the gospel in Acts chapter 15, the recognition that there were some who were part of the church but belonged to the Pharisaical group that were like, look, if you're going to become a Christian, you first of all need to become Jewish. And one of the things we need to do for all these Gentile Christians is make sure that they obey the law of Moses. Man, what a mistake of understanding the gospel. You, you've actually missed the gospel because the necessary component to being obedient to God's strategy is overcoming these prejudicial gaps that, e that e evolve and are deep-seated from these traditions that are a threat to the gospel. Hey, either everybody gets a stake at grace or nobody does. That's how it works. Either everybody gets an invitation to say, come and find renewal of life and forgiveness to be recreated in, in, 
in conformity to Jesus that God does for you supernaturally or no one gets it. Do you guys understand the point here? That's why Samaria is mentioned. Samaria is the key that helps us to understand what Jesus really has in mind is the church understands this strategy through the lens of overcoming cultural distances. Now, we live in a kind of isolated area, right? We, we, we live in a, a place that's a little bit closed in. Um, I guarantee that you have a kind of unconscious bias towards other peoples who don't look like you, who don't talk like you, who don't act like you. Here's what's crucial. God's given you grace. You get to give it to who? Them. People who are different from you and I. And that's what God's greatest desire is, so that the gospel makes it to the ends of the earth. There's another reason why this is the the most important lens for us to read, and it's because um, to see the overcoming of cultural distances, the overcoming of these prejudicial gaps, um, is contingent on two things. Don't let me lose you here, okay? I know it's getting hot out here. Don't let me lose you. Uh, the first is understanding, and the second is application. The gospel is no good to you if you don't understand it. That makes sense, right? Do you, you ever get um, something from Amazon, open up the box, you look in the instructions, and they've all been in French, and you cannot read in the French language? Right? Uh, what good is that to you? I, I, I can't use it properly if I don't understand it. And so understanding is the principal key that needs to be overcome. And do you know something? In the book of Acts, God solves it in the very next chapter with the giving of the Holy Spirit to allow the disciples to speak in languages they've never spoke before. They're unlearned, fully known languages. They exist. They're not gibberish. They're real languages. The text in Acts chapter 2 says, each one who's gathered from all these nations come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and each one hears these disciples. Galileans! Do you know why? Why is that an insult, that they're from Galilee? Does anyone know? What kind of people live in Galilee? What, what is there in Galilee? There's a big lake called the Sea of... It's not a trick question. Sea of Galilee. And they're all fishermen. That's right. Now, I hate to pick on fishermen, but they, they, don't, they don't care so much about book learning. They care about catching fish. And all of these fishermen from Galilee are speaking other languages. Here's why God did that. God did that because he's trying to overcome the prejudicial gaps that exist the cultural distance that exists by giving them an understanding of the gospel. So I want you to know language is numero uno. You know, what does that mean? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. L- language is number one in the progress and expansion of the gospel because understanding is the key to it. This is also why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the church in Corinth was messed up on tongues. They were abusing the gift and nobody was understanding what was being said. This is why Paul has to give this instruction to say, look, when you gather together, you need to make sure this is happening in order because if a foreigner comes in and they hear you all talking, they're going to not understand what's being said. He says, you very well may be praising God, but nobody knows. Nobody knows. So, numero uno, step number one in the gospel progress is understanding, and that happens through language. Number two 
is application. Let me ask you this. Is the gospel... Uh, I'm coming up with illustrations on the spot here. Um, is a cup of water any good to you in a cupboard? If I said, "Hun, could you give me a, a, a cup of water? And she gets it and puts it in the fridge. Is that any good to me? It's, it's only good to me if I use it. Correct? You, you, you understand? It it's only has benefit to me if I apply it. This is why understanding is number one. You have to understand it. But number two is essential. You have to apply it onto your lives. So this uh, prejudicial gap lens that we're looking at in Acts 1.8, I'm saying, it, uh, I, I submit to you, is the, is the most important lens because not only does it record the unfolding of the story of the book of Acts in the giving of the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples to speak in other languages, but if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Acts chapter 2 real quick, because we have in chapter 2 a sermon from Peter. Peter gets up and he, he ties what's happening to God's promise in the Old Testament. Remember, we start with the promise. Um, if you look with me in chapter 2, uh, verse 36. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you don't have a Bible, say, I'm in trouble, Pastor. <laughs> All right, I want you to look off your neighbor if you don't have a Bible. Make sure you see Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37. When the people heard this, how'd they hear it again? Because of language, right? That's how they heard it. They understood it. Look what the question is. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Oh, man, that's like bread and butter for a preacher to hear, man. That's just like, man, I love hearing that. What, what, what do we do? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see from the story of Acts itself, the lens that I'm offering to you of prejudicial gaps being the primary lens is the right one. Because number one, understanding is reinforced by the giving of the Holy Spirit to speak in other languages. And number two, application is what's necessary. And that's exactly what we see happening in the very first sermon that Peter gives. The, the, the crowd says, what do, so what do we do? We understand what you're saying. Help us to apply it to our lives. If you have your uh, sermon notes, there is a little chart right in the middle. And what I'd like you to do uh, through this lens of prejudicial gaps, I want you to see the categories that Jesus sets forth, because if we can understand it, uh, I think we can apply it. So there, there's two conditions, language and culture. Language and culture. Language has to do with understanding. Culture has to do with application. If you've ever um, gone traveling overseas, uh, would you agree, agree with me that some sometimes there's unknown assumptions that you're not aware of, right? If you've ever had a, a, a Spanish person kiss you, <laughs> it's a little shocking, right? But no, that's like totally normal uh, over there. But the cultural differences are the, are the form of needing to apply uh, what's being said there. You've heard the saying, right? When in Rome, it's good. You, you get the point, right? So two things in your notes there, language, number one, and culture, number two, I want you to see the three categories that are laid out. When it comes to Jerusalem, they speak the same language and they have the same culture, right? So for the disciples in Jerusalem and Judea, 
they speak this. So you, I would like you to work, write the word same. It's the same. They speak the same language and they have the same culture. That's the first category. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, he has in mind this first category where understanding is easy and cultural nuances are easy. We get it. We know what a pasty is. We're not confused on that. So uh, th- th- this, is the, this is the first category. Samaria, that's that middle column right there. Uh, the Samaritans spoke the same language. So language is the same. They understand it, but the culture is different. So I want you to write the word different right there. Samaria is a completely different category for the disciples. It's a completely different category. They speak the same language, but the customs, the cultural nuances are a little bit off. They're a little bit different. When Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman uh, in John chapter 4, she asks him all these cultural questions. First of all, she's like, we can't be seen talking to each other because culturally that's not allowed. So what I want you to see is the first category, everything's the same. The second category, language and understanding is the same. You're accessible with understanding, but you have to spend more effort to, to get the cultural application figured out. All right, third category, ends of the earth. Hopefully, if you're a, you know where this is going, right? Language is what? Different. different, and culture is also different. So I want you to write different, different in there. Um, there is a missiologist named Ralph Winter whose writings I adore. I, I, I have studied missions for years and years. And in this estimation, for a perspective of Acts 1 8, he has labeled these three categories as three different forms of evangelization. But evangelization is a big word. I can't even spell it. So he abbreviates it E1, E2, and E3. So I'd like you at the top of those columns, under, uh, right above Jerusalem and Judea, write the, write the letters E1 and the number one. Uh, right above Samaria, write E2. And right above ends of the earth, write E3. You, you have three different categories within our obedience to God's strategy of overcoming the cultural distance and the prejudicial gaps by reaching those who are e, in your E1 sphere, by reaching those who are in your E2 sphere, and by reaching those who are in your E3 sphere. Now, I want to give the church a quiz. You guys ready for a quiz? John chapter 4. Let's, let's go there. Let's look at John chapter 4. My watch says I got 10 minutes and it's 77 degrees. So you guys are like, we could stay here all day. This is perfect. Perfect, Ryan. Keep going. Okay. I heard you. I'll keep going. John, John chapter four. <clears throat> John chapter four. The Pharisees heard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That was the Bible you just muted. Just want to make sure you got that. All right. John chapter four, verse one. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was uh, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, this was not Jesus who baptized, it was his disciples. When the Lord heard of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, they measure their time from sun up, so the sun comes up at six. That's when you start counting. So what time of day is it? It's <laughs> You're thirsty in the Middle East at noon. So Jesus here is stopping at the well. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
And she said, no parlez-vous espagnol. No, that's not even anything, right? I just totally made that up, yeah. What, what is it? No, no, no habla, no habla. Okay, okay, I'm out of my depth here. My, my point being, did she understand Jesus? She, she understood it. So here's the quiz. What category is Jesus reaching here? Is Jesus an E1? Is Jesus an E2? Or is Jesus an E3 here? Think about it. The, the language is the same, but the culture is Samaritan. So Jesus would be a, an E2. Jesus is an E2 missionary right now, reaching somebody who speaks the same language but has different customs. Um, if you continue a little bit further, um, if you look with me in verse 27 of John chapter 4, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked him, what, what do you, no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people. Now, check this out. The woman is now a missionary. She, she's leaving Jesus, and she's going back to her town. So what, what category of missionary is the Samaritan woman? E1, E2, or E3? Shout it out if you know. E1. She's an E1. This is what I want you to see. <clears throat> Watch what's so awesome about this. Jesus does not go into the town. It started, <clears throat> it started with an E2 missionary by Jesus. Excuse me. <clears throat> so that you now have no longer an E2 missionary, but now you have an E1 missionary. She goes into town to speak to her own people. And if you uh, look, look down with me to verse 39, watch what happens. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? What's the Bible say? Because of the missionary. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when, the Samarit so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two more days because of his words. Uh, many more became believers. Watch what they say now in verse 42. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves. This is what an E1 missionary does. This is why this is so important for us to understand the strategy of Acts 1.8 in the context of prejudicial gaps, because there are three categories Jesus creates that are dependent on understanding and application, language and application of culture. You have to make sure that we are traveling to the E3 distance, catch me, wait, watch me now, for the purpose of creating E1s. E1 is so much superior to E3s. E1 is so much superior to an E3. But you will never get an E1 without an E3. Yeah, everybody understand that? You, you are never going to get an indigenous expression of the good news that's able to reach in its own language and culture unless someone goes. Unless someone breaches the prejudicial gap to reach out to a language they don't know and learn a culture they don't know. But when they do, what they will create are more E1s. And here, I listed down just a couple of reasons why E1 is better. E1 is more sustainable and manageable. How much money does it cost to send a foreign missionary compared to one locally? 
You, you see the difference? E E1 is so much better. Uh, E1 is better with impact because they stay. Uh, foreign missionaries don't stay always. They'll stay for a long time, but they eventually have to go. An E1 stays. So the impact is always greater. Um, it has gr- greater meaning because an E1 understands all the cultural distinctives that an E3 doesn't even know. E3s are constantly tripping over their themselves, making little mistakes here and there. Uh, one that uh, Emily and I made uh, routinely while we served as missionaries was expecting people to show up on time. You need to show up on time. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. Right? I'm American, just like Jesus. So Jesus is on time. You need to show up on time. Well, where we served overseas, no one's on time ever, 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 ever. And by setting that expectation, we were encountering all this unnecessary frustration and expectation that was hindering our witness. Why? Because we didn't understand the culture. So once we figured that out, ministry was so much easier. E1s are always so much more meaningful because they understand the culture. It's more accessible because it's local. If you're dependent on a foreign missionary, you have to go find that foreign missionary. But an E1, that's right where you live. So it's accessible. It's lasting. E1 missions are lasting because you can grow over time with these people. And finally, it's better because it's reproductive. What, What did we find with the Samaritan woman? She's an E1 missionary back to her hometown. And what did she make? She made more missionaries. E1s will produce more E1s. Here's my, I hope hope you're hearing me this morning. I feel like I might be a little repetitive, but here's the point. We work towards developing E1 missionaries, but E1 missionaries are completely dependent on E2 and E3 missionaries. So we have to go. We have to go. And when we go, we actually are seeking to lift up that first category of that local witness. And this is the entire story of the book of Acts. This is the entire unfolding of the gospel, and it's the reason you get to worship here with the church. Because once upon a time, there was an E3 missionary that came to these lands and created E1 ministers and missionaries that stayed here. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Although I'm free and I belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having a law. Though I'm free from God's though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So to win those who were not having a law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Question. You heard me read that. This is a trick question, so don't, don't get lost on this. Was Paul in E1? Yes. Was Paul in E2? Yes. Was Paul in E3? Yes. And I also want you to know that this is different for different people. So for Paul to go to the Romans or the, or the Greeks uh, is like an E2 position for him, right? So he, he, he has some Roman background. He, he kind of understands it, but it's not his culture that he grew up in. So he's an E2. But what about for somebody like Peter? 
Peter's just straight Jewish background. Like that, that's an E3 step for Peter. So the same people group is a different category for different people. Or think about Luke to go reach the Jews. For Peter to reach the Jews, what would that be for him? E1, 2, or 3? Peter is a Jew, who, who, so customs language. He's an E1. What about Luke? Luke was a Gentile. So that, that's, a, that's an E2 or an E3 for Luke. What, what I want you to see is it's different for different people. But all three of those are happening simultaneously for the whole purpose of developing E1s. If you have your sermon notes, let's, let's wrap this up. How can, we, how can we be obedient to find that power that comes from God? Um, so in your sermon notes, I have missional power comes from God through four ways. I, I, as we leave here, I want to give you four ways for you to pray about and focus on that we would be obedient to this final perspective of Acts 1.8. Number one is this, it's through prayer. It's through prayer. If you look in your Bibles in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, as we read the story, is taken up from them. In, uh, in verse 12, all the disciples wander back into Jerusalem because Jesus said, go to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to look at verse 14. What's verse 14 say they do? Immediately. Immediately, what are the disciples doing? The Bible says they all join together constantly in prayer. If you are going to receive power from God to do this amazing task that you are deficient in yourself of, I want you to know that power begins in prayer. I like to think of prayer, there's a lot of analogies. The one I'll give for you today is like a refueling station, like a, like a gas station. Um, you, you need to get on the road and, and, and get going, right? But, man, you need to refuel. And if you don't refuel, how far are you going to get? And do and you know the, the gas station offers more than just gas? It offers restrooms. It offers some fellowship. It offers snacks. Uh, I want you to know that prayer for you and I isn't just getting refueled, but it's finding ourselves woven in fellowship and harmony and community with God. So power from God to do the mission, it begins with prayer. Number two, patience. If you want power missional power, you're going to have to be patient. I just want to remind you again of Jesus's words in verse four. What's he say first to the disciples? They're ready to go. And he says, wait, isn't that a bummer? (laughs) I'm ready to go, man. Let's go. Let's get this thing on the road. Uh, No, you need to wait. And part of that is because they had the wrong perspective. In fact, in verse six, look at the question they asked Jesus. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to who? The, the, the disciples were concerned about Israel. It's about Israel. It's about us. And Jesus is like, you know, you guys, I love your, I love you're so fired up. I love all your energy. That's good energy. But you need to slow down because you're still not thinking about it right. And so for you and I to receive power, it's going to include patience. Uh, when we have our men's prayer breakfast, we got one coming at the end of the month. Guys, help me out. Who's been there? What's the number one prayer request for men? Patience. Careful asking God for patience because he's going to give you opportunity to be patient. If you ask him for patience, he's going to let you work on that. On on the mission field, we had our missionary mentor uh, gave us this saying. He said, you need to be careful that your ministry is received and not achieved. That's easy to remember because they rhyme, right? The difference between received ministry and achieved ministry I hope you listen to me here for a moment because sometimes we want things to happen on our timeline. I I want this to happen the way I think it should go. 
And God says, you, you just need to wait. You just need to be patient. One of the greatest lessons I've learned as a pastor is sometimes you need to be okay to let ministries, good ministries, let them die. Because God has a timing involved in all these things that's not according to my schedule. It's on his schedule. So ministry has to be something that we receive. Just like the disciples, the promises. God's going to give you the Holy Spirit. You need to receive it. So received ministry versus achieved. My question for you would be, where is God's timing different than yours in your life? Could you answer that? Where is God's timing different than yours? And are you willing to wait? Number three, if you want power, it comes through God's promise. Jesus said, I will give to you what my father has promised. So we see patience, we see waiting, but it's not an arbitrary waiting. It's a, it's a confident waiting. It's a kind of confidence that says, look, I, God's going to keep his word. And the person who has that confidence has power to be a missionary because they know God will keep his word. And so if you want power, it rests not on your ability, not on your timing. It rests on God's promise uh, we have this little next to our house our family goes through goes on a walk uh, a lot of times and and there's this little kind of stone walkway that starts low and it gets high and of course sadie she loves to walk on it and as it starts to get high it starts to get really high and she says daddy catch me and so i stand there and i say okay jump and she goes uh, uh, and then he starts doing that. I say, I say to her, I'll, what, what does the dad say? I drop you? What's the dad say? I'll catch you. Come on. I promise. I promise I'll catch you. Until finally, there, there's a jump. Now, we, we've done this over and over and over. And you know what? The more we do it, easier it gets. Why is that? The, the more that she jumps... And the more she finds that my promise is true, the easier it is to jump. Listen, this is the same in your, in your Christian faith, in your Christian walk, in your journey. God's asking you to jump somewhere. I hope he is, because if he's not, you're not growing. Hopefully somewhere in your life, he's asking you to jump. What are you doing? Get, but you know what? The more you do it, the more you trust God, the easier it becomes to trust God. And there are some missionaries who can go to some terrible places. I hear from Jesse and Shannon sometimes about one of these missionaries that takes people specifically into the worst, most persecuted places. How in the world could you do that? I guarantee you, number one, that person knows how to pray. I guarantee you, number two, they've learned how to wait for received ministry. But number three, they trust God. They totally trust God. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, man. You can trust me. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So number one, prayer. Number two, patience. Number three, promise. And number four, you already heard the message from Angela this morning. It's possession. Jesus says, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what's obvious with anybody who's been baptized with water? Do you know what's obvious? They're wet. That's right. That's the same idea with the Holy Spirit. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and I, I got a whole lot I'd love to teach and explain on this and what it is and what it isn't and how the word baptized is used throughout the New Testament, but understand at the very, very least, 
it means you are covered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that is very similar to the next thing that we're told in verse 8. You will receive power when, you guys with me, verse 8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, this is the verb, comes on you. Do you know that's the exact same word in Greek that's used when Gabriel speaks to Mary about the incarnation of Jesus in her womb? She's like, how's this going to, I'm a virgin. How's it going to work? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Here's what that means. The Holy Spirit's possession of you is the Holy Spirit enacting a power that you are not capable of doing. I think, uh, I think of all the uniforms that Angela displayed for us today and how you, you understood who this person was by virtue of what you could see on the outside from them. This is how the Holy Spirit works in you and I. He works from the inside such that on the outside we see more of Jesus. I'm, I'm owned by Jesus. I am possessed. I'm his possession of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. Have you guys ever seen <clears throat> over in um, like Buckingham Palace, those guards with the big tall hats? You guys know the ones I'm talking about? And what do tur- tourists love to do? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Come take selfies and be like, hey, you know what? Now, if that was you or me, what would you be tempted to do to that dude? Bam! I mean, what would you be like? Ain't nobody watching. It'll be so fast. No one, like that. But what do they do? What do they do? There is a kind of restraint. Why? Here's why. Because they are representative of more than themselves. They represent the, the queen. They represent Buckingham, right? So they're wearing the uniform. They belong to someone else and therefore their actions flow from that. And the very same is true from what Angie was saying to the kids today. You have opportunity, church, the, to the big kids. Let me talk to the big kids today, right? This is a big children's message. You have opportunity to witness to the world in a way completely different so that like her coworker, people will ask, why are you always happy? Why do you respond that way? How come you didn't punch that dude in the face? Do you know why? Because Jesus possesses me. I am, I am his possession by virtue of his calling and his marking upon my life by the Holy Spirit. I, in essence, am wearing the uniform of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit has come upon me to do in my life what I cannot do. I, I, I just got to leave you with those. Um, prayer and patience in God's promise and making sure that the Holy Spirit owns you. Um, I hope that God is speaking in your heart and in your life so that you are involved on, on all three of those levels as an E1 missionary, as an E2 missionary, and as an E3 missionary. Our church needs to be. And so as we close, I want to I at least inform the church of uh, the strategy that we have here at Grace. And this, we're wrapping it up now, 60 seconds and we're done. I promise. Um, we have three different spheres of mission outreach. We have local missions that we focus a budgetary item on where we seek to be a blessing to the people that we can reach right here. We have national missions where people speak the same language as us, but sometimes they have different customs than us Upers. And because of that, we are seeking to be E2 missionaries to our nation. And then finally, we have international missions where the language is different and the culture is different. Our church is committed to go to the Dominican Republic next year on a trip to a people who speak a different language than us. They have a different culture than us. 
you might not be going on that airplane, but you are going. I want to remind our church, we are doing this together. And why are we doing it together? Because we seek to be obedient to God's strategy and cross those prejudicial gaps and those cultural divides so that one day, every people, every tribe, every language, and every nation will be found before the throne in concert with the angels declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Let's pray.